Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit course starts with a discussion of the care of the surgical client. What should be included in the plan of care for a preoperative client? The care given the preoperative client should include teaching about what they should expect before, during, and after the procedure. The teaching should emphasize sensations they can anticipate rather than the technical aspects of the procedure. In other words, they should be told what it will feel like, not just what we will do. In addition, the patient should be prepared for the tasks they will be expected to do postoperatively. This should include how to breathe properly. Many patients do not know how to perform diaphragmatic breathing and should be taught this. In addition, the patient should be taught how to cough postoperatively. Depending on the site of the surgery, the patient may be need to taught may need to be taught how to splint their operative incision while coughing. Teaching them how to splint the operative incision involves having them hold a pillow against it with their arms to keep the edges of the incision from being pulled laterally apart during the cough. Leg exercises that include the foot and the ankle should be taught as they may assist in diminishing the risk of thrombophlebitis. This is taught by simply having the patient do things such as circling their foot at the ankle and setting their calf, <clears throat> their calf muscles by pointing their toes at the foot of the bed and setting their quadriceps, which is making their upper and front leg muscles tight. All of this helps pump blood out of the lower extremity. The purpose and use of the incentive spirometer should be taught if it is likely that the patient will be expected to use it postoperatively. The ideal time to teach the proper technique for turning and getting out of bed is before the patient's surgery. If you wait until the patient's already had their surgery, they're frequently in far too much pain and far too anxious to uh, listen to your teaching. Let me pause here for an NCLEX alert. A incentive spirometer should not be confused with an expiratory flow rater. On your NCLEX, you might see the expiratory flow rater uh, just as initials, EFR. And what a, and what a expiratory flow rater is, you usually see these at your clinics or your pulmonologist's office. Um, it looks like a syringe, but it has a whistle on the end and a little plastic needle inside. And it's got a red area at the back of the tube, a yellow area in the middle, and a red area uh, closest to the patient's mouth. You ask the patient to blow in this expiratory flow rater as hard as they can. You take let them blow in it three times and you take the last or the medium reading. So if they have good air exchange, it'll the needle will fall into the green area. If their air exchange is okay, uh, it will fall into the yellow area. Usually if they're a smoker of any kind, it doesn't matter what the person smokes, uh, the, the, it'll, the needle will fall into the red area. 
Now that's an expiratory flow rater. It measures the lung capacity, right? The incentive parameter builds the muscles in the lungs and makes the muscles strong so that the person can have good flow rate. Especially important is teaching about postoperative pain control. Uh, this should include, this may include the use of the patient-controlled analgesia. It's essential that the patient be taught that the staff only know that the patient is in pain if the patient says he or she is. I know that sounds bizarre, but there are many patients who sit and suffer in silence because they believe that we know they're in pain and would be giving them meds if they were allowed them. In fact, we only know what we're told. Let me pause here for yet another NCLEX alert. Pain is a psychosocial need that comes after physiological needs. So if you're getting tutoring from me, you will understand what this means. But I've come up with a hierarchy, Garrison's hierarchy of assessment, right? Uh, safety is always first, or neurological problems is always first. Then your physiological needs, right? Pain is not a physiological need, so don't automatically pick pain on the NCLEX. And I'll discuss more about this in our tutoring sessions. Now let's continue with the program already in progress. The patient may not tell us that <clears throat> about this pain for a variety of reasons, including not wanting to be thought weak, not wanting to bother us, or um, in some cases a fear of the pain medication. Equally Im important is that the patient knowing that the narcotics are good, useful, and helpful tools for expediting their recovery. The patient may have a fear of narcotics and addiction. Of course, the use of cognitive means to control pain, such as relaxation, guided imagery, and distraction, should be taught, if appropriate, to the patient and the situation. Let me pause here for yet another NCLEX alert. Um, when a person is taking pain pills or anesthesia because of surgery, the bowel movements do not return after surgery for uh, three to five days. It could take that long for the patient not to have a bowel movement. That's one thing. Um, make sure that when you answer the question on the NCLEX, if you get it, um, what you're doing 15 minutes after the vitals, after surgery, what will you be doing 15 minutes after surgery? You will not be checking for the gag reflex. We always want to do airway breathing circulation. Uh, the gag reflex returns when the anesthesia wears off. 15 minutes after surgery, you're going to try to be waking the person up and trying to take their vital signs, not checking for a gag reflex. A gag reflex returns when the anesthesia wears off one to two hours. Now let's get back to our lecture already in progress. What if the patient tells me during the pre-op assessment that she has had severe rhinitis for several days? That's a darn good question. As rhinitis is, is a very common condition known as a runny nose, um, and many people perceive it as being of little consequence. 
It is prudent to record this information and inform the physician because the congestion of the nasal passages may complicate the planned anesthetic procedure. In addition, the patient may have taken over-the-counter drugs to treat her rhinitis. Many of these drugs are potent autonomic nervous system agents which may affect the anesthetic plan. What are the major risk factors for surgery? Well, the major risk factors for surgery include things such as poor nutritional status. If the patient has a history of a poor nutritional status, they'll have poor healing and poor immune response. One of the things that's difficult about that is it's difficult to fix a poor nutritional status in the short term. It requires weeks and months to do that. Obesity is another form of poor nutritional status, but it carries its own particular problems. Many obese people have poor mobility, which will become a great problem postoperatively. Uh, fat itself is less vascular than other tissue, and because it has less blood going to it, it heals more slowly and uh, is at risk of wound dehiscence or having the wound rupture postoperatively, which, as you can imagine, is a major setback. Also, the very obese have poor respiratory performance. The fat load squeezing the chest and the abdomen makes it difficult to take a deep breath, and doing that creates the uh, potential for postoperative respiratory complications. Uh, the patient who has a pre-existing fluid or electrolyte imbalance is also at risk during surgery. It's easy to imagine that, the, that if the patient is hypovolemic before surgery or dehydrated before surgery, they will tolerate blood loss even more poorly than the regular patient will because they're behind to begin with. Steroid therapy is a major risk factor because of the, it decreases adrenal function and the patient will need supplements in order to be able to respond to the surgical stress. Anticoagulants are a risk because they increase the risk of bleeding. Advanced age is a risk factor, a common one, because it decreases patients' pulmonary reserves, cardiac reserves, hepatic, and renal reserves. And by reserve, I mean those things where the client normally has adequate function but does not have that extra backup function to handle uh, setbacks. They, they don't have enough uh, extra capacity to handle the extra demand that's placed by surgery. So pausing for an NCLEX alert, I just want you to be made aware that a hemophiliac type A would get desmopressin uh, 30 minutes before surgery. Why is that? Because the hemophiliac, what do they do? They bleed easy, right? What does desmopressin do? By the way, look up the generic name of desmopressin, okay? So what does desmopressin do? Well, desmopressin increases blood pressure. Now, normally you would give desmopressin for bedwetting or uh, diabetes insipidus or, you know, to, uh, something like that. I know I did, right? So I made sure to check the blood pressure because it elevated the person's blood pressure. But if you are given a question about a hemophiliac getting surgery, 30 minutes before, give desmopressin because it raises the blood pressure. Since they bleed easy, raising the hemophiliac's blood pressure is a good thing. It prevents them from bottoming out. So, once again, let's go back to the lesson already in progress. The aged have much slower wound healing and frequently the aged bring with them pre-existing disease. 
Last but not least is latent is substance abuse, particularly latent abuse, which may set up the patient for withdrawal in the hospital. If we don't know what drugs they're on, then we keep them from having those drugs they're likely to withdraw in the hospital. And last but not least, cocaine abuse can lead to sudden death during anesthesia. What nursing action is of the highest priority in the immediate care of a post-operative client who has had general anesthesia? The initial answer to that is a simple one. Always the highest priority after anesthesia is airway, airway, airway. Is the patient able to move air in and out? Immediately following that is breathing. What's the patient's respiratory rate? What's the depth of their breathing? Are their breath sounds clear? And if pulse oximetry is available, what is the pulse oximeter value? Circulation is the third priority. We want to know the heart rate, the blood pressure, the skin signs. Is the skin warm and dry or cool and moist? What color is it? We want to know what the level of consciousness is. We expect it to be diminished following anesthesia, but we also expect it to be more than deep coma. Patients should be arousable after most general anesthesia. Drainage, we want to check all the tubes that come in and out of the patient and note the presence and nature of all the drainage. We want to assess the patient's comfort. Do they have a need for pain medication, nausea medication? Is their NG tube working? Are they vomiting? Let's not forget patient safety. It's essential to make sure that safety equipment such as side rails is available and in use and documented. Also, psych. Many patients awaken from surgery with questions about the surgery and the outcome we need to do the best we can to get them the answers they desire. Okay, I just wanted to bring up here. Notice how they did the airway breathing uh, circulation. All right. Um, he said something about drainage. So, let me do an NCLEX alert here and just tell you a little bit about chest tubes. All right. First of all, don't be afraid about the color of the blood. The NCLEX likes to mind, you know, mess with your mind and, and they say rust colored sputum, dark colored blood, uh, bright red blood, specifically with chest tubes. It does not matter what color the blood is. If it's bright and squirty, it just means it's coming from an artery. If it's dark and dripping, it's coming from a vein. That's all that means. Getting back to specifically for chest tubes, um, if the person is draining more than 100 cc's or 100 milliliters an hour, more than 100 milliliters an hour, bring that to the doctor's attention because that could be an internal wound. Now, when can you discontinue a chest tube? You can discontinue a chest tube if they are draining less than 250 cc's in a 24-hour period. Again, this is an NCLEX alert. Write it down. Now let's go back to our already scheduled programming. What is the difference in nursing care for a person who had an epidural anesthetic and one who had a spinal anesthetic? Well, that's an interesting question. The epidural does not puncture the dura as a spinal does. 
it is above the dura, as in epidural. And therefore, whereas the spinal anesthetic can cause a loss of cerebral spinal fluid, which is contained within the dura, the epidural does not cause that same loss. The epidural patient is unlikely to develop a spinal headache. Once the epidural patient's sensation and motion return, he or she can be up, depending, of course, on the nature of the surgery. For example, a patient who has had an epidural for a hip replacement is far less likely to get out of bed immediately than a patient who's had an epidural for a C-section who's likely to be up and ambulating fairly quickly. Remember, it is the loss of cerebral spinal fluid following a spinal anesthetic that leads to a spinal headache. Therefore, we need to do things to keep the patient who's had a spinal from losing excess CSF. First, we can keep them flat. That will diminish the hydrostatic pressure that's pushing the CSF through the puncture wound. The second thing we can do is encourage fluids, PO and IV, because this supports the secretion of additional CSF, cerebral spinal fluid, to replace that which is either leaking or was removed. After initial post-anesthetic recovery, what are important components of post-operative respiratory care? Well, our major goal post-operatively is to prevent atelectasis and pneumonia. One of the tools we use is coughing. And contrary to what was taught many years ago, we only ask patients to cough if they need it. In other words, if they feel the need to or they're producing sputum. And when we ask them to cough, if they've had abdominal or thoracic surgery, it's wise to have them splint their wound with a pillow so that they don't experience ex excessive pain. If they hurt when they cough, they are unlikely to cough more. For that same reason, we medicate the patient with analgesics if needed and wait long enough for them to take effect before we go in and ask the patient to do their pulmonary toilet. When we're asking the patient to cough, ideally we should get the patient vertical, either dangling on the side of the bed or in the chair. The diaphragm works much, much better than when the patient is vertical. We want to record the nature and quantity of the sputum. I don't mean you need to measure the sputum with a specimen cup. What I mean is we want to know what's it look like and is there a small, medium, or large amount of it. It is important for you to remember that coaching is critical to success with coughing. Patients who have you standing there encouraging them and coaching the, the technique and believing that they can do it and reminding them how important it is will do far better. Specific patients to not have cough are those who've had cranial surgery, eye surgery, or hernia surgery. Incentive spirometry is a very useful tool. To, do, to use it, we must get the patient vertical if possible, medicate for pain if needed. We want to set the goal at or above the previous level. Once again, stay with the patient to coach and encourage them, and encourage the patient to do, uh, to do the uh, incentive spirometry hourly without supervision. Okay, uh, let me just interrupt real quick. Remember that the incentive spirometer uh, builds, helps the lungs, muscles be strong so that the person can breathe, have good air exchange, right? What is the expiratory flow rate for? That measures the lung capacity. Um, red is not good. Yellow, mm, green is excellent. So don't get the two mixed up again between an incentive parameter, building the lungs up, uh, making them strong, the muscles, and measuring the lung capacity. 
expiratory flow rater. Please don't forget that. It was on the NCLEX. And last but not least, the ideal therapy is getting the patient out of bed and ambulating. This may require medicating the patient. It may require you to get help to make sure the patient's safe during ambulating. I suggest that you use a gait belt that will help you and the patient feel more comfortable. Don't forget to put shoes or slippers on the patient. And last but not least, don't forget to take tissues for coughing. It is not at all uncommon to get the patient to the far end of the hall away from their room and suddenly the therapy works and they start producing a significant amount of sputum. Almost all post-operative patients have pain. How can I best make them comfortable? Well, fortunately, our control of pain post-operatively is much improved and you have a great variety of very good tools available. The first tool that you need to use is a really good assessment of pain. The, the tool that I use for that is the mnemonic PQRST, which stands for P, what provokes the pain. Have the patient tell you where, what makes it hurt. Q, what is the quality of the pain? Is it tearing, burning, stabbing? R, what's the region of the pain? Where is the patient hurting? S, what's the severity of the pain? The easiest way to measure the severity of pain is with some sort of metric, such as uh, tell the patient that you ask them to rate the pain from 0 to 10, with 0 being no pain and 10 being the worst pain imaginable. And last but not least, time. How long has it been hurting? Uh, one thought uh, regarding the region of pain is it's important to remember that post-operative patients can have pain in places other than their operative site, and it can be very important. For example, if I were your patient and I had had knee surgery, and I asked you for pain medication and you didn't ask me where I was hurting, you might completely miss the fact that my pain isn't in my knee, but in fact is in my chest, and could perhaps require an entirely different approach, a workup for a myocardial infarction. We've got lots of drugs available. They fall into two major groups. First is the narcotics, and the second is the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. The narcotics are extremely useful post-operatively. Uh, the routes for which they're available include, but are not limited to, IM, IV, by mouth, epidural, even the new transdermal route where there's a patch, sort of like a nitroglycerin patch that goes against the skin. Close monitoring of the vital signs is essential with narcotics, particularly respirations, as narcotics are a respiratory depressant. It's also important to remember that these drugs decrease the perception of pain centrally in the central nervous system, the brain. They do not affect generation of pain at the source of the pain, and therefore the patient is likely to feel the pain but not be bothered by it quite so much. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents are very useful and underutilized. They're available in PO and by rectum, and there's even one by the name of Ketrolac that's available IM. These are not respiratory depressants. They diminish the generation of pain impulses in the periphery, and therefore do not cloud central nervous system function. They are not addicting and are widely underutilized. They can be very effectively combined with narcotics. Patient-controlled analgesia is very useful. It administers narcotics to the patient in a safe and effective way. The computer allows the patient to control their own dosing within the limits set by the physician. For this therapy, patient and family teaching is essential, for only the patient is to push the activation button. This is a safeguard to prevent overdosing. If the patient has too much drug on board, they'll be too sleepy to push the button for more. The family should be specifically taught not to push the button. There have been several cases where the families pushed the button and over-sedated people.
were saying that it's very important to monitor the client when PCA is being used. I can see how frequent nursing assessment is even more important when PCA is used than when nurse-administered analgesia is used. What about blood clots in the patient's legs postoperatively? Well, thrombophlebitis, which is blood clots, is a very real risk postoperatively. I've had a number of patients die very suddenly from it, so it's a very important topic. Let's think about the word thrombophlebitis for a moment. Thrombo means clot. Phlebitis means vein inflammation. So we're looking for those things that will cause vein inflammation that will result in a clot. The things that are more likely to cause that are an increased blood viscosity or a dehydrated patient, decreased blood flow, as when the patient's not very active, and vascular injury when there's something that hurts the legs, such as uh, tight hose or having the legs positioned up on uh, stirrups during surgery. If a clot forms and then embolizes or breaks loose, it will travel to the lung and lodge there, resulting in what's known as pulmonary embolism, which can be promptly fatal. Fortunately, it is not most frequently fatal. Uh, a little piece of uh, jargon here. It's important to remember that embolus is the singular term and emboli is the plural term. So let's talk about what pulmonary embolism really does for the patient. It obstructs the flow of blood through the lungs and causes hypoxemia to result. In some cases, it can result in immediate cardiac pulmonary arrest that is frequently irretrievable and CPR works poorly for. What puts surgical patients at risk? Well, uh, they frequently are dehydrated, they frequently aren't moving around very much, and we do lots of things to their legs, such as dressings and, and positioning, that can damage the vessels. So the prevention we need to think about is the very best one is walking. The next best is sub-Q heparin. Things like anti-embolism hose and sequential compression devices are good. And there's a new device on the market which simply compresses the sole of the foot, which is a very interesting product. You said that you can prevent phlebitis by exercises and activity. I know that when a person has a positive Homan sign, I should keep him or her on bed rest. Why? Good question. Homan sign is pain in the calf when the foot is dorsiflexed or pulled up towards the nose with the knee slightly bent. This is a sign of thrombophlebitis. Early in the care of thrombophlebitis, patients are kept in bed to prevent activity from breaking the clot loose from the leg vein and letting it travel to the lungs. Progressive activity is allowed once it is felt that the clot is stable. For the same reason, the sequential compression device is not used after thrombophlebitis has established itself lest we cause the clot to embolize, a phenomenon I have seen happen, so I know it's real. What is important regarding wound care? That's one universal thing almost all patients following surgery have is a wound. Our goal is prompt healing without infection. Wound infection usually sets in more than three days postoperatively. So if the patient presents with a fever in less than three days, postoperatively, it's usually due to respiratory complications or a GU complication such as a urinary tract infection from a Foley. We need to keep the wound clean and free from accumulated drainage. To do this, we need to put a dressing on it which protects the wound and traps the drainage. Dressing changes are a specific technique we need to review because many people forget how to do it. First thing you want to do is assemble your equipment, including a trash can and an empty bag. 
We need to prepare the patient. That may require pain medications or at least teaching. We put on our gloves. Uh, if the wound is going to be, if the dressing is likely to be soupy, we certainly need to wear gloves. Some dressings that are dry can be changed without, but I, I think gloves are probably a good idea. We remove the dressing. Beware of tearing the skin with tape. Uh, it's very easy to do, especially with some of the new high-tech, very aggressive tapes. We discard the dressing in the bag. We discard our gloves. We examine the wound. Now we need to open our sterile wound dressing tray. Take it out of the plastic overcover and point the first uh, cover away from us, the first corner we're going to open. So we open it away from ourselves. Then we open the lateral sides away from us. And then we reach over the final portion of the cover and open it towards ourselves so that we've never reached over the sterile field. Then we glove again. We clean the wound as is needed. We dress the wound as is needed. And then we apply tape. It's important, once again, to be wary of the skin. There are some new tapes out that are elastic. And if they are applied under tension, will result in fairly significant skin damage. Uh, so we be careful that we do not uh, put the skin under lateral tension as we put the tape on. And last but not least, we chart what we've done so that others can follow us. Okay, I think it's important here to talk about the different types of dressing changes. Uh, so let's just go over that. Hi, the first one I want to talk about is hydrocolloid. Hydrocolloid dressings can be used on burn wounds that are emitting liquid, necrotic wounds, pressure ulcers, and venous ulcers. These are non-rebreathable dressings that are self-adhesive and require no taping. The flexible material that they are made from makes them comfortable to wear and suitable for even the most sensitive skin types. So that's hydrocolloid. H-Y-D-R-O-C-O-L-L-O-I-D. I can't talk more about these, but uh, you can look at it on my Pinterest page. The second dressing I want to talk about is hydrogel. Hydrogel can be used for a range of wounds that are leaking little or no fluid and are painful or necrotic or are pressure ulcers or donor sites. Hydrogel can also be used for second degree burns and infected wounds. Hydrogel dressings are designed to maximize patient comfort and reduce pain while helping to heal wounds or burns and fight infection. The cooling gel in products like Burn Soothe are what makes them so effective at reducing pain and speeding up the healing process. The third type of dressing I want to talk about is alginate. Alginate dressings are made to offer effective protections for wounds that have high amounts of drainage and burns venous ulcers, packing wounds, this means wets to dry, and high state pressure ulcers. These dressings absorb excess liquid 
and create a gel that helps to heal the wound or burn more quickly. Containing sodium and seaweed fibrous, these dressings are able to absorb high amounts of fluid, plus they are biodegradable after use. These dressings require changing around every two days, sometimes more, due to the amount of liquid that they absorb and the nature of the wound. Changing them often could cause too much dryness or could lead to bacteria penetrating the wound. So you don't want to change these dressings more than uh, every other day, depending on the drainage of your wound. Again, this type is called alginate dressing. They should only be used for wet wounds with high liquid drainage, else they can hinder the healing by drying out wounds too quickly. Number four, we have collagen. Collagen dressings can be used for chronic wounds or stalled wounds, pressure sores, transplant site, surgical wounds, ulcers, burns, or injuries with a large surface area. These dressings act as scaffolding for new cells to grow and can be highly effective when it comes to healing. Collagen dressing encourages the wound healing process in a range of ways. These include by helping to remove dead tissue, aiding the growth of new blood vessels, and helping to bring the wound edges together, effectively speeding up healing. Then we have foam. We use foam for wounds of varying degrees of severity. Foam dressings can work incredibly well, as well as for injuries that exhibit odors. Foam dressings absorb exudate, that's that dead liquid, that green liquid, that dead skin liquid, okay, that's exudate from the wound surface, creating an environment that promotes faster healing. These dressings allow water vapor to enter, keeping the area moist, promoting faster healing, but prevent bacteria from entering the affected area. These dressings come in various sizes and shapes, as well as in the range of adhesive and non-adhesive options. Then we have transplant dressings. Transplant dressings are useful when medical professional or care givers want to monitor wound healing as these dressings cover the wound with a clear film. These make identifying potential complications much easier, such as by making infections easier to spot at an earlier time. For this reason, these kinds of dressings are often used on surgical incision sites, on burns, on ulcers, and on IV sites. These dressings are breathable, breathable but permeable to, impermeable to bacteria. Q 
help to keep the wound clean and dry, preventing infection and speed up healing. They are also flexible, which makes them more comfortable to wear. Then we have the cloth dressings. These are the dressings that you see in the nursing homes and at home health the most, right? Cloth dressings are the most commonly used dressings, often used to protect wounds of areas of broken skin. They are suitable for minor injuries, such as grazes, cuts, and areas of delicate skin. These dressings come in all shapes and sizes, from small coverings for fingers to larger ones for wounds across wider areas of the body, as well as pre-cut dressings. They also come in roll options that may need to be cut to size. We also use, there's another dressing they're not mentioning here, uh, uh, number eight, duoderm. Duoderm can be used when you have a uh, pressure ulcer that's relatively small. Duoderm acts as a layer of skin so that that minor pressure ulcer can heal. You do have to change the duoderm as often as uh, the order is when it says to change the dressing. But duoderm acts as a layer of skin and it helps minor pressure ulcers heal. Now let's go back to the uh, lecture already in progress. This will be on the NCLEX types of dressing changes you really should know. So I would consider this section an NCLEX alert. Now let us continue. I know that we modify a patient's diet following abdominal surgery. Why do we do this? Well, during abdominal surgery, the bowel is manipulated. By that I mean it's taken out of the, the stomach, out of the abdomen in some cases, placed on the side. Um, in some cases, each and every inch of the bowel is manipulated as it's being inspected. And that may happen two or three times in some sorts of surgery. The bowel's response to all this manipulation is that peristaltesis stops. When peristaltesis stops, we have what's known as a paralytic ileus. Nothing is going to move through the bowel. Um, and if nothing moves through, we need to be very careful what we put in the bowel, lest we cause nausea and vomiting. And vomiting in the post-operative patient is no fun, especially if they've had abdominal surgery because they pull on their abdominal incision. It's very painful. So we must modify their diet uh, to prevent nausea and vomiting until the bowel is ready. Initially, we place the patient NPO, nothing by mouth, and we put there in, put a nasogastric tube in, typically to suction. And then as the bowel becomes more uh, active a little bit, we can simply clamp the nasogastric tube and see how the patient tolerates it. What we'll find is that some patients, when the tube is clamped, get a nausea, and they, we don't have to put the tube back in. All we have to do is, is hook it to suction. That's why we clamp it as opposed to removing it. If the patient can tolerate having the tube clamped for a while, then what we can do is remove the tube and give them clear liquids. Clear liquids being liquids that you can see through, things like apple juice, water. If they tolerate that, then we can move forward to something called full liquids. That's liquids you can't see through, or things that are liquid at body temperature, such as ice cream or jello. Those aren't liquids per se, but at body temperature they are. 
And then, if all of that is tolerated well, we move forward to a diet is tolerated. One thing that's important for you to remember is that you need to be wary of the clear liquid diet if it is used for a long time because it is woefully deficient in nutrients. There will be a few patients in your career who will have a clear liquid diet for longer than you'd expect because they're not tolerating a full liquid diet or other things like that. And if they are not receiving parenteral nutrition via a vein, they can become uh, malnourished fairly quickly on a straight clear liquid diet. Last but not least, we need to think about uh, paralytic ileus because it is complicated by narcotics. Uh, we Narcotics slow bowel activity. Nonetheless, narcotics are critical to recovery despite the, the fact they slow the bowel because they accelerate the return of bowel function by letting the patient ambulate. In other words, narcs may be directly bad for the bowel, but they're indirectly good if you take advantage of the analgesia and get the patient out of bed and ambulate. I know that the very young and the elderly are at risk for dehydration, but I am not sure why. You are correct about the increased risk of dehydration in the young and the old. It's a big problem. Adults are approximately 50%, 50 to 60% fluid. Infants are approximately 70 to 80% fluid. Therefore, and elders are about only 45% fluid. Let's think about what that means for an infant for a moment. An infant needs a lot of fluid. Loss of even an equal amount to what you or I could lose as adults is a large percentage of their total body fluid. Let me give you an example. If you have an infant or a child who's about 5 kilograms, and let's say they lose 100 ml of fluid, that's about 2% of their body mass. Whereas for you or me at, let's say, 70 kilograms, 100 ml is less... It, way less than 1%. It's in the neighborhood of 1 to 2 tenths of a percent of our body's total body fluid. So the point being, they're very sensitive to small amounts of fluid loss. Uh, a small amount to them, a, what's a small amount to us is a big amount to them. The elder, on the other hand, is already half dehydrated at the outset. Um, both are much less tolerant of decreased intake and of increased in output. Decreased, decreased intake or an increased output. Both groups are less likely to respond to thirst as well, if you think about it. The infant is entirely dependent on us. They cry, we must respond to them. We don't know what the problem is. And if the infant is in fact thirsty and we never think of that, the infant will be at risk for becoming dehydrated. Elders, on the other hand, many well elders have a diminished sense of thirst. Um, and those who are not well are frequently dependent on you or me to provide them their fluids. In addition, some elders limit their, their oral fluid intake due to urinary problems. They don't want to go potty too many times. So for these reasons, uh, fluid loss or diminished intake is poorly tolerated by these patients. If a low intake is combined with increased loss, they'll dehydrate very fast. An example being the patient who's uh, got diarrhea and nausea. Come, they have an increased loss from the diarrhea and they have a low intake because of the nausea. Those people will dehydrate very rapidly if they're infants or elders. And both groups are at significant risk for heat injury uh, because of their fluid management problems. I once had a patient who had an NG tube attached to intermittent suction. He frequently asked for ice chips. I gave him lots of ice chips to quench his thirst and prevent dehydration.
The charge nurse was unhappy with what I did, and I didn't understand her explanation. Can you explain this for me? Well, let's follow where the ice chips go. Tap water is used to make ice. Then the ice goes to the mouth and the stomach. It melts, and it mixes with the gastric secretions. This decreases the concentration of electrolytes in the lumen of the gut in the stomach. And so electrolytes diffuse out of the gut wall to increase the concentration. The suction then pulls this solution of water and electrolytes and gastric secretions out of the body, such that there's a net result loss in electrolytes. It's important to remember that 100 ml of ice in and 100 ml of NG drainage 20 minutes later is not equal because you put water in, yet what you suck out is water with electrolytes in it. For this reason, we use um, sodium chloride as an irrigant for wounds or for nasogastric uh, irrigation. It's isotonic. It will result in no shift of water into cells, no shift of electrolytes out of cells. This promotes homeostasis and prevents local cell damage when you're irrigating wounds and prevents the loss of electrolytes from the NG, the nasogastric system. Ways to uh, get around this are to perform very good oral hygiene for your patients. That will diminish some of their thirst. Sometimes their thirst isn't that they need fluids. It's that their mouth is, is not clean and, and they feel that if they drink or put ice in there, it'll make it feel better. So sometimes you can diminish their demand for ice by simply giving them scrupulous oral care. And then don't give the patient within arm's reach more ice than you want them to take. I will guarantee you if you give them a full cup of ice, they will eat a full cup of ice. So only give them within arm's reach that which you are willing to have them take. At this point in the lecture, I think it's best to cut it off here because it seems like the University of Pennsylvania professors are getting ready to talk about fluid and electrolytes. Um, so instead of mixing it in with the care of a surgical client and types of dressing, uh, I'm going to stop it here and put this on a recording for fluid and electrolytes. If you're saving this recording, save it under surgical care and types of dressings.